Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. A very special guest on our Think Humanities podcast today, John Parrish Petey is the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. His previous positions include publisher of the Virginia Quarterly Review at the University of Virginia, literature grants director at the National Endowment for the Arts, director of the NEA Operation Homecoming, writing the wartime experience program, and director of the NEA Big Read program. His career also includes work as a director of communications and an editor at Mercer University Press with a focus on the humanities. He has written speeches for a U.S. president, a first lady, and a librarian of Congress. Chairman Petey will be in attendance at the Kentucky Book Festival this year on November 17th at noon at the Kentucky Horse Park All-Tech Arena. Mr. Petey will be in conversation with uh, the celebrated Kentucky poet, author, and essayist Wendell Berry, along with Dr. Morris Grubbs, Associate Dean of the Graduate School for Professional Development at the University of Kentucky. And it's an honor to have uh, Chairman Petey with us today. John, thanks so much for taking time out from a very busy schedule. Bill, it's my pleasure to join you. As you know, um, and you've been asked this a number of times, especially by uh, councils and uh, by executive directors of humanities councils all across the country, uh, we're often asked, what are the humanities, uh, what are the humanities for? And you may or may not have a canned answer, but I'm asking you to just to spell that out for us because it's a frequently asked question of us. Absolutely. I'm learning that I shouldn't find a canned answer. Uh, I can go about that two ways. One, the humanities are always, I think, understood to be exploring the human condition. And then, of course, that leads to other questions. What exactly do we mean by that? And if I'm talking to somebody in an elevator, I'm talking to somebody on Capitol Hill, I'll often say that the humanities mean history, for example. If you like watching Ken Burns films on PBS, then you like watching the humanities. My own field is literature, and the humanities are a core part of literature. So we're talking about any number of areas of study in, in the university setting that's often called the liberal arts. So history, literature, political science, philosophy, archaeology, uh, government. And uh, one thing I can say and something we're focused on a great deal at the National Endowment of the Humanities is the humanities also means civic engagement. It also means knowledge of your nation and your world. You are a son of the South. Tell me about uh, your growing up um, in Mississippi, uh, some of your schooling. Um, uh, I want to move into what uh, the influence uh, that Vanderbilt University was uh, for you as a, um, an undergrad. But uh, what about growing up as a son of the South? Absolutely. So I grew up in Mississippi, uh, a small town outside of Jackson, the capital. And so my graduating class was 29 people. In fact, when I did an interview and, some, and I said for the interview, it was around 30 people. And I crowdsourced my friends on Facebook and somebody was able to uh, scan or, or photograph the copy of the annual. And since it only took four pages to get the entire graduating class, uh, uh, it was not hard to count. And so in many ways, 
that was a unique experience of kind of America that doesn't always exist in quite the same way again. You, you knew everyone in town. And, and my father was the town doctor. There were two or three doctors there. And so it's not just that we knew everyone. You know, I, I lived in the home of the person who delivered my friends into the world and, um, and saw their grandparents out of the world. And so there was a great Southern intimacy in that place and in that time. And so I didn't know what I wanted to be in life. Uh, my, my father was the son of a steel mill worker, and Vanderbilt changed his life, a scholarship there. And I, I think from the earliest age, I was just assumed I would go to Vanderbilt and be a doctor. And uh, I certainly studied the sciences there, but I, but I had no gift for it. Um, and so I, I switched to, uh, to English and, uh, and when I looked around Vanderbilt, I had the tradition, for example, of Robert Penn Warren living there. My dorm was not far from where his dorm was, where my father's dorm was. And so um, when I finally found my calling late in college, uh, it seemed that everything had come full circle. And then, and then I'm blessed with this chairmanship and it feels coming full circle yet again. You give a lot of credit to uh, to your uh, graduate and undergraduate work at, at Vanderbilt and your associations there, your friends and your professors. What what was it about the professors that you had uh, in in the field that you're practicing now uh, that uh, that so uh, instilled in you um, uh, a lifelong learning of uh, of the humanities and of reading and of books and the things that you enjoy? What I really appreciated uh, about uh, about my professors at Vanderbilt and later in grad school, and as I was fortunate to study under professors that were probably not unlike Wendell Berry himself was uh, at the University of Kentucky, which is to say, scholars who loved literature. Now Berry, of course, is a creative writer, uh, but. Um, I, I, I have written literary criticism, I have edited books of literary criticism, but if we get too far away from just the sheer delight in the written word, then I think we've made a mistake there as, as readers and as teachers. And so at Vanderbilt, yes, my professors were experts in the field of Southern literature, they were experts in the study of classics and Latin, those were the areas that my mentors were in. Uh, but you always felt that they loved authors and then they loved books as the products of authors and and yes they they analyzed metaphors but it was always from the point of affection for the text and 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 i i think sometimes honestly i worry that we've lost a little bit of the all of that creative act and uh and sometimes we can get so esoteric that we're dissecting these works that we're spending more time talking about obscure facts than we are the collective whole, just the sheer work of literature and what it means, for example, to live in a country that is well-read and well-informed. You told uh, Humanities Magazine in a profile piece uh, this summer that uh, Robert Penn Warren's uh, All the King's Men was a, uh, an influential book in your life. I want you to talk a little, a little bit about that and um, uh, you've already mentioned Robert Penn Warren uh, uh, once, um, and and also, if you would just add into your response, uh, his his style, his uh, abilities, his um, uh, unique 
a genius in in the written word and, and the sentence structure that he used in not only All the King's Men, but in his poetry and in his other novels. Absolutely. Well, Warren is a, a special writer in my life, and and I feel that way as a reader. I feel that way as, as a writer, uh, as a literary critic. And also, I'm a book collector. It's, it's one of my deep pleasures. And so, for example, if we were to pivot uh, the screen, my office in Washington, I have any number of foreign edition posters of the movie All the King's Men uh, in, the, in the original form. And I collected in any number of languages. So I'm interested in, in that book just as an object and a cultural phenomena. But as a reader and a writer, Warren's gift was his expansive use of language. The opening page and a half of All the King's Men is, is I think, really unequaled in American literature in some ways. Uh, just the idea, the hypnotic description of the road uh, there in Louisiana, and I'm, this week I'll be going back uh, to, to Louisiana, um, and that, that book is very much in my mind. And... And I think also that he was a poet, uh, had a great influence on his, his abilities as a novelist. Quite often, poets are known for writing very sparse novels, uh, very atmospheric novels. Warren was very different. I, I think in many ways he carried his novelistic tendencies into his poetry as opposed to the other way around. Um, I, uh, in his book on Audubon, uh, one of his poems is set in Kentucky, and, he, and it's a rather autobiographical work. And, and that poem, uh, I think this is this is from memory, but I think the end of that poem is, um, uh, tell me a story. In this time and place of mania, tell me a story of deep delight. I mean, I've missed a line or two, but that's essentially the yeah. ending of that. Mm -hmm. and, and Warren was always telling us a story. But what's wonderful about... Uh, uh, all the King's Men and, and where it ties into any number of other Southern writers such as William Faulkner is that time was quite often for him a capitalized word in the middle of a sentence. Time was a character, it's a chronicler, it's a wound. It was a member of the family. It was a mirror. And uh, and, and he had an extraordinary gift uh, to bring you into the story. And yes, he had plot, he had you know other things, structure, he had a large a group of characters that he found a quick way to make you care about someone. Uh, but, uh, uh, but really, it is about the fact that he understood the tradition he was in, even as he reshaped it. As you uh, know, our Kentucky Humanities, Kentucky Reads All the King's Men program, uh, looked critically at the novel and its impact on... Um, uh, and relevance uh, in uh, our politic of today. What do, what do you think the, uh, we've had wonderful uh, scholarly discussions about the, uh, uh, the relevance of the, of the novel uh, in the 40s when it was written and, and how it resonates today. So uh, the, the novel being published uh, so many years ago, 70 odd years ago, uh, the Pulitzer Prize, and, and how those themes still resonate today. Is there a, is there a direct link about uh, what Warren was writing about then and, and what we see playing out today? Well, what I think is that any number of great novels echo through time. Tolstoy's novels will have a time when they resonate more than others. Uh, James Agee's great nonfiction work, uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, 
that did not sell that well in the 40s. But when we had kind of back to the earth in the 1960s, all of a sudden people rediscovered that novel. Um, Warren's novel is quite often interpreted as him writing about being in Louisiana during Huey Long's service and the governorship and, and, and the senatorship. And that that's what it was. It was a morality story on what he was observing as a professor there. Uh, and Warren has talked about that a little bit, but deeper research and Warren's later interviews talk about the fact that he had been in Europe between the world wars and looking at the rise of fascism and that, that he was bringing over a, a, a different influence and in some ways that it was a universal. And I think any novel... Uh, the great thing about a novel that works across time is it has a deep level of specificity, which All the King's Men has, but also it's sufficiently universal that it can be adapted to other times and other cultures. So I, um, you know, just by the nature of my job, I do not wade into, you know, contemporary political discussions. Um, what I will say is that uh, – there are important conversations there about democracy, about power, about about um, how one goes about uh, uh, expressing the democratic process that I think is for all times. Um, so it's a novel that I've found of value for the last 30 years of my life. Uh, I won't say it's more valuable this year than other years. I do think, though, one of the pleasures of reading a book for your life, I, I would say to your listeners, if you can find a book that connects with you and read it decade after decade, mm -hmm. you will inhabit different characters at different times. Um, I can tell you that um, in that novel, I wasn't always as invested in, uh, in Willie Stark, the governor, losing his son. I thought of that as more of a novelistic need in the novel. I don't want to give away the novel to your listeners. Well, uh, they've all read it. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, of course your listeners have read it. But, uh, but on the other hand, when I had my own child of high school age, uh, the sadness, the terror, the idea that you might uh, lose your child uh, and how would one ever recover from that – that is something that mattered to me in a way that, frankly, it never mattered to me when I was that age myself. Well, uh, Chairman Petey, these these times that we live in, these these uh, some would say these uh, troubled times, um, when we see such intense partisanship, uh, we see um, a number of uh, people uh, angry, uh, and we haven't witnessed that before in in our country in, in maybe the way that we see it today, uh, the uh, political system uh, on both sides, uh, on all sides uh, being questioned. But the key question that I, I want to ask you about is how do you see the humanities and how do you see your role at the National Endowment for the Humanities answering some of these concerns? Do we have a role? I think the humanities are naturally part of the solution. And by the way, when I say solution, I don't mean a one-time fix. Uh, but I think that anytime people are in the room and they're in the room with somebody they disagree with, but they look at the other person as someone of goodwill, uh, that's something that is about empathy, yes. Uh, it's about having a level of personal ethics. Uh, it's about making evidence-based decision-making. All of these topics are core humanities concepts, core 
humanities teaching teaching so when i think about the value of the humanities to our moment um it is about the idea of reminding ourselves of the founding ideals uh of the constitution uh the declaration of independence and at the same time if we're historically aware we realize that we have been through much darker times and much more divisive times uh when a lot of us might have been reintroduced to Burr and Hamilton through through the musical Hamilton, but it's not a small reminder that two generations of, of the Hamilton family uh, were killed, or you know, one might say murdered mm-hmm. uh, over essentially political differences. Um, that we had an entire civil war fought over political differences. That uh, that we had uh, religious and political leaders such as Martin Luther King assassinated. Uh, over political differences, uh, over a rejection of, of reform of society. So, uh, and by the way, when we when we talk about um, the turbulence of the Vietnam War era, that was the time that this agency, the NEH, was created in 1965. And our legislation says, in part, democracy demands wisdom and vision in its citizens, and that's important to me. Not just in our government leaders, but the wisdom and vision in our citizens. So when I think about the humanities, I think about the responsibilities we have to each other. And I don't believe you could be a fully formed citizen if you do not have the humanities and hum- humanistic study embedded in your life. I'm talking to John Napiti, the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, who will be in Kentucky on November the 17th to be in conversation with Wendell Berry at the Kentucky Book Festival's um, one-day event, the Kentucky Book Fair. Of course, we're expanding to six days uh, this year. Uh, Throughout the week, there will be events every day. Uh, But Chairman Petey will be joining us uh, on uh, November 17th, along with Dr. Morris Grubbs from the University of Kentucky. You have um, looked forward. You've met Wendell Berry before. You've uh, commented on his work. Um, I I want you to tell me a little bit about uh, your fondness for his his writing and uh, and for his influence on uh, America. Well, I what I think is wonderful about Wendell Berry's work is how many different audiences he has. It's it's um, he was the speaker for the Jefferson Lecture. That is the NEH's highest honor uh, in our annual address. And I'm told by the staff here that you believe it was the most widely attended, uh, large, uh, largest audience uh, of any we had. And you'll meet people that have been to eight or ten of ours. But with Wendell Berry, is my understanding, he had a lot of people that were coming for the first time because he has so many different audiences that connect with him. Some of us love him for being in the tradition of Southern literature of the novel of, of the American South, of the rural American South. Uh, that's one of the ways I intersect with them. Uh, having said that, my, my wife, which uh, a call out to Kentucky, she went to, she graduated from the Southern Baptist uh, uh, Seminary there. And uh, yeah, uh, she, she did. And mm-hmm. she was actually uh, uh, voted, uh, you know, you know, favorite student or whatever of our classmates. Yeah. Uh, uh, so she loves Wendell Berry, reads very different Wendell Berry books. We, we both overlap in reading the Sabbath poems, uh, uh-huh, these, yes. these wonderful poems of his. Yeah. Uh, when I want to write uh, and, and kind of 
tune up the engine a little bit, I might look at his essays. I don't want to look at too many or else <laughs> it'll remind me uh, how much greater his gift is. Yeah. But but these are very accessible essays, very learned essays, but there, there's, there's no jargon there. It's, it's just, just uh, a person talking to you about the world. And, and of course, in his novels, uh, many of the chapters essentially read as, as, as short stories. And there's a new edition of his work, Library of America, which, which I know is going to be sold at the book festival and yes. I'll just give him a copy of. And, and they've done a nice job of taking the work of decades and kind of reconstituting it, you know, in a narrative and, and smoothing out, uh, you know, various, uh, things. If, if it says somebody was born one year and then 20 years later, it says somebody was born in, you know, a different year. So I, I think that's a wonderful book to start with, uh, for the prose. Um, the other thing is if you believe in environmental writing in American history, that's a whole nother group that could not even begin to have a conversation without Wendell Berry being a part of it. Uh, so, uh, and just practical, you know, I don't know that I would go to a book to learn about farming from him, but I would go to a book to learn about the life of a farmer yeah. from him. And so, um, to understand, uh, the changing of the seasons, I look at his books on that in the same way I look at, uh, you know, Pilgrim of Tinker Creek or some of these mm-hmm. other canonical books of the 20th century around, uh, nature and love of nature. Well, we're all looking forward to your conversation with him, and I know you are too. I think it would be a, a real treat to, to be with him, and um, I know you'll have a, a big audience for that. Uh, in that Summer Magazine profile that I referenced a few minutes ago, I, I like this particular question, and I also liked your response, which I think deserves repeating. So the question was, is there an intellectual or cultural argument you're hoping to make as chairman of the NEH? Um, well, I, I was hoping you might remind me of what my answer was. Uh, well, what? you you do know your answer. Um, and, and I think even if I didn't uh, refer to the uh, summer article, uh, you, you, uh, you certainly know what direction that you want to go yeah. in. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so, Bill, is that about uh, uh, where I want to take the agency is in many ways where it's always been, which is which is uh, to the people. I I am a big believer in the public humanities. And I I do say in the magazine that when I think about the humanities, it's not just one story. Uh, I think the great story of America is is thousands of of small stories. And so I feel like as a chairman from a rural state, uh, I spend a lot of time saying who's being left out of the conversation. I don't spend a whole lot of time on, you know, I want to know why to the extent that we can fix it, but I'm not uh, assessing blame. I'm just saying that somebody's story was forgotten. Somebody's uh, history was forgotten. And, and how can we have a comprehensive enough agency uh, to say that everybody, you're welcome here. Your story matters. Your museum matters. Uh, how can we have books, podcasts, films, exhibitions, uh, not just about the major acts, uh, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, uh, the suffrage movement, but but how can we tell these small, quiet, often forgotten stories? Well, I think that's excellent, and I think there's a real a cry and a, and a real need uh, all over the United States, not just particularly in, in the uh, rural areas, but in urban areas too. 
But we find that when we travel outside of our urban areas in Kentucky that uh, there's a, a real call to us. Uh, there, there's so much appreciation for us making the effort to... Uh, I'll just give you an example. When we announced our Kentucky Reads program in Robert Penn Warren's hometown of Guthrie and uh, the outpouring of, um, of homecoming that we had, uh, that we'd made the effort to go down there, I think those things are important. And I think that's one of the things that, that we can all do. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think in many ways, you know, because I'm from Mississippi, I might be identified with rural states and I am traveling to a lot of states and maybe don't see a chairman as frequently. But that also means that when I go to New York City, um, I'm there are people there that have great humanities experience. They're, they're in a city with remarkable cultural assets. But it doesn't mean that everybody feels like that's their museum or their place. Um, and there's a lot to be said. Instead of saying, here's the massive museum, come to us. I think the endowment uh, needs to be sure to say, we'll go to you. I think, uh, you know, it's not unique to me to say a lot in life is about showing up. That's one way you express it matters. And so I'm excited, frankly, just as a a reader and and listener to go to the Kentucky Book Festival. I'll be there with my daughter, uh, who's a freshman at Vanderbilt herself. And and uh, but to sit on a Saturday in in a wonderful city and listen to authors with my daughter, that's a gift. Yeah. And um, so I, I look forward to being there with you and, uh, and the, your listeners. Well, thanks, John. And let me just uh, end up with this, um, uh, which uh, I think is sort of a, uh, it's a call to action. It's a statement of yours, and I'll get you to comment uh, on it. Uh, it was a statement that you made about a program that you were involved in called Operation Homecoming and a philosophy uh, that you, uh, I think, would like to, to stress uh, at the NEH. In fact, I think it's sort of a clarion call to, to all of us in the humanities. And you said, never limit yourself in your vision of what something can become. Find the project, make the effort, for you have no idea what is possible. And I really, uh, I look at those words, I respect what you, your direction that you're taking the, uh, the National Endowment and all of the councils around the country—it's—it's—it's it's, it's quite a—it's um, quite a mission statement, uh, if you will. Well, thank you, and thank you for calling those words out. Um, and I—I I meant them then. I mean them now. I've had—I've uh, been fortunate to work ten years at the National Endowment for the Arts, and now the National Endowment for the Humanities. I, I couldn't overstate the talent of the civil servants I work with. And that project, Operation Homecoming, that began with two poets. One was Dana Joya, then chairman of the NEA, talking with another poet who had taught at West Point. And she was from the Vietnam War era. And she said, "Uh, my cadets are now going to Baghdad. They're in Afghanistan. What can we do for them? And so we thought we would run for several months on a few bases, writing workshops to help the troops kind of unpack what they're experiencing. We got a lot of Vietnam War vets and others. We got World War II vets such as Shelby Foote and Richard Wilbur, uh, both who have now passed, to read their poems on a CD for us. Uh, Will Campbell, another yeah. uh, person who has mm-hmm. connections uh, to Tennessee and, and mm-hmm. Kentucky as well. And uh, and I spent the next seven years of my life um, going to military bases in Bahrain and uh, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan. Talking to the troops about they do have a story to tell and unburdening themselves of it would be of, 
of therapeutic value. And, uh, and what we learned should be no surprise to anyone. We learned that these weren't just testimonies. These were works of literature. And so, uh, and that came out of the idea of, of having a level of ambition, but also never limiting your vision. And I might quote something that was said to me uh, by Ray Bradbury when we were working on the big read at the NEA. And I don't think Ray's the first person to say it, but somehow when Ray Bradbury says it, uh, it carries deep weight. And we were talking about something and probably the complexity of a project, probably Operation Homecoming, because he was on a film set with us in California for that project. And he said, John, sometimes you have to jump off a building and build your wings on the way down. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and all my friends that run nonprofits, all the people that have a dream uh, to write a book or, 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 or paint uh, what's in them, I think that's a way of living. It's a way of building your wings on the way down yeah. and, and, um, and being a hopeful person. Um, and uh, so uh, I have probably learned that as much as anything from working the two endowments, that the American people are a hopeful people. Well, John, that's uh, inspirational words. Uh, and, and I appreciate you sharing that with our uh, listeners. Uh, John Petey is the chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities and will be in Kentucky on November 17th uh, at the Kentucky Book Festival uh, in conversation with Wendell Berry, but also enjoying uh, a number of other uh, writers and, um, and some of our speakers. Uh, we uh, will look forward to seeing you and welcoming you to the bluegrass. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me on. All right, John. Beautiful. That was very uh, nice. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it so much. And I look forward to uh, meeting you in person and seeing you uh, in New Orleans uh, before the book uh, festival. So we'll get a, at least to say a chance to say hello. Yes, yes. Well, I hope sometime between now and then I'm going to write that speech. Oh, yeah. Okay, John. <laughs> Thanks so much and talk to you soon. Okay, take okay, care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.